Welcome to Monster Porn, Weird Fiction and Horror Podcast. The podcast that likes getting into politics occasionally. Because it enjoys getting fucked over good by sociopathic and human monsters. Today's story is Pastorus, Whosoever Believeth, by Brett Norwood. This is the third installment of Pastorus. For the previous appearances, check out episodes 12 and 23. Day monsterbaters. I hope everyone had a successful and safe 4th of July weekend. I know I did. All of my fingers are still intact. Where are you going with that, Matt? To your mother's house, Brett. Oh. Sparklers are her favorite. Hmm. Anyways, we wanted to thank you for the continued reviews and ratings. One review that came in this week was from an Apple podcast user named Slitteris and went as follows. Give it to me. There. Five stars. Now I want the butt sex promised. But seriously, if they could send out a podcast more frequently, then I would never need another podcast. With the surprising lack of horror and weird fiction on the iTunes podcast app, this really scratches the itch. Great characters and meta plots. Matt and the recently deceased Brett, but hopefully not for long, slay these characters. Now you can continue pandering for stars and reviews, the only bad mark on this podcast. Oh, 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 yeah, there will be but six. Anyhow, uh, thanks for the review. And the pandering worked, didn't it? Uh, if you want to support the show, there's no better way than leaving a five-star rating and review. I'm going to continue pandering. Another way to support the show uh, is participating in the Summer of Sin sweepstakes. To enter, you have to take a selfie with a Monster Porn merch on full display in the most inappropriate of settings. Wear an MP t-shirt to mass or slap a sticker on a missing child poster. <laughs> Just kidding about that last one. There are boundaries somewhere out there. Uh, we haven't found them yet. Uh, did I miss anything? Nope. Rate, review, and subscribe, and maybe there will be butt sex later. How's that for pandering, Slitterus? We're looking at you. Which eye, Brett, with which eye? All right, on to the show. Happy Fourth of July, Brett. Oh, man, you're wearing your Make the Afterlife Great Again hat? Dare I ask, what are you up to? I am studying one of the most important documents of the Founding Fathers, Matt, in order to settle one of the great political debates of all time. Which is? Boxers or briefs. Where the fuck did the Founding Fathers talk about boxers versus briefs? Duh. The Declaration of Underpants. Don't tell me you haven't heard of the Declaration of Underpants. You know, we hold these touches to be self-evident. This is the greatness of the American experiment, Matt. Before the Founding Fathers, it was a world of going commando. They understood that in order to keep the ball of freedom rolling in our country, the country could not go on free-balling. Were you homeschooled? It was a natural conclusion following the Boston teabagging party. I don't see how boxers versus briefs is important to the future of America. Matt, it's more than that. It's the future of Western civilization that hangs in the balance. 
of the crotch of her underwear. Without underwear. It's all wedgie down the leg from there. But we've got to show the boxers that briefs are the right way to keep your liberty bells in balance. I mean, what's so great about briefs? Oh no. Are you a boxers man? <laughs> They're more comfortable. I mean, come on, man. Oh no. Why do you have to be so wrong? This is tearing apart this country. And now this podcast. Briefs are clearly the fashionable solution for traditional masculinity, Matt. Where do panties fit into this? Are you a communist? The brewery at 10.30 p.m. blasted Bruce Springsteen. Everybody's got a hungry heart. The chatter of several dozen drunken heads roared dully like the ocean. A college girl danced on a table and hit her head on a low-hanging lamp. Speech was slurred, music ignored, women hit upon by men too buzzed to be afraid, too drunk to make much sense, and some women were drunk enough to listen to them. Hunter had enough an hour ago. His eyes hurt. The commotion made him dizzy and withdrawn. He just kept smiling and nodding at what his bandmates were talking about at the table. Wyatt was making hand gestures on the table, and his mouth was moving a lot. But Hunter couldn't hear words. Logan nodded excitedly and said, Yeah, man, a lot. Hunter could hear Logan, probably because he was sitting next to him. It was the first time that Hunter had gotten paid for playing music. In that, it was a milestone. However, they had ended their set early an hour ago, because the crowd made a request with the manager that they wanted the jukebox instead. The band seated the stage with the utmost professional civility, and the manager had promptly paid them the agreed rate, which Wyatt had apparently negotiated and which worked out to a cool hundred per member. However, it was not lost on Hunter that in shoving the money so promptly into their hands, they were basically getting paid to get off the stage. Hunter was very depressed, in general, but extra depressed for the night they'd had. Wyatt had tacitly failed to use any of Hunter's songs in the set, a refusal of polite omission, but now that was just the icing on the dick punch. The dick punch was that college kids would rather pay a machine money to play radio hits than listen to the band. So not only were Hunter's songs rejected, they were rejected by the band the bar rejected. The girl danced across the table. Wyatt scowled at her, and Hunter could see his mouth say, Oh, what? Okay, yeah, I guess. As he raised his big, hairy hands, as if preparing to catch her, as the table wobbled, and she cackled, and nearly kicked Logan's Belgian ale with her bare, painted nail foot, as she performed for the boys who were trailing her through the crowd. Logan laughed anxiously. Wyatt may have looked annoyed, but Hunter noted that he definitely took a good look up her skirt as she passed onto the next table. Logan continued to laugh his deep, nervous laugh while Hunter put his head down on the table. As Hunter let his head lay on the cold table, he stared into the room and the shifting, protean crowd, faces replacing faces, voices blending into voices, limbs a mess, clothes a kaleidoscope of delirious acid trip color. His heavy eyelids drooped. Suddenly, in between someone's armpit and another's shoulder blade, 
His eyes had locked with a girl's, and this gave him a little start. She was short, pale, wearing black, with dyed purple hair. She did not smile. But she also did not look away for the two solid seconds that they held eyes. Hunter pulled his head up from the table, gazing after her into the crowd. But the crowd had swallowed her, and she was gone as a shipwreck in the sea. Life is a weird thing, Mobob, Hunter thought. I could have sworn that girl was wearing... Logan set his beer down hard, calling Hunter back into the same inaudible yarns Wyatt had been telling for the past hour. I gotta go, Hunter told them, yelling, but he could tell. He was barely heard, if at all. Both men looked at him, puzzled. But then Wyatt waved him on and smiled an ear-to-ear closed-lip grin to say adios. And Hunter got up from the table pushing through the college kids like the prow of an icebreaker in the Arctic. Hunter worked his way to the back door, and the bar spat him out into the cool alley. Steam poured in from the dryer vent of the neighboring apartment complex. Glancing around, he found a couple smokers down the way, mumbling to each other. But other than that, he was alone with the dumpsters and vomit. Hunter held his head. He watched as the smokers took a puff, turned away, and went on down the alley. Uh he muttered. I feel like a butthole sunny side up. He had intended on going home, but he thought again about the girl he'd made momentary eye contact with in the crowd, and now he felt like he should have looked for her and tried to talk to her as he left rather than walking straight out. But what does it matter, he thought. Girls don't want to talk to me anyway. Hunter leaned against the brick wall and stared down the alley and watched the lights reflecting off the puddles and billows of dryer steam rolling and dissipating. She was wearing a... a man. I'm more buzzed than I thought. I probably should have looked for her on the way out. As if in reply to a wish, the girl stepped through the rolling steam. Hunter stood from the wall. The girl was dressed in the cassock of a priest, and she was leveling a pistol at his heart. She did not smile. They say the pastoress comes by night, and if you see the pastoress in the night, despair, for you have wandered far, far beyond salvation's reach. Was it bad that she dished up the blueberry crumble before she decided on the entree? She told herself, No, it's fine because this was an organic health food store, and the evil stuff in the dessert had to be, on the whole, less evil than the regular evil stuff. She trusted Melinda's cooking, though she didn't trust any other restaurant in town. She knew Melinda's hot bar was always made with organic ingredients by the most radical health nut in town, and was still, somehow, the best cooking in town. Naomi's autumn eyes flicked over the entrees in the hot bar, roasted chicken, gluten-free lasagna, and, ah yes, the vegan cashew stir-fry. Perfect. Hi, Naomi, chirped Melinda, running out from the kitchen, with a crate full of milk jugs. Hi, Naomi returned, as cheery as she could summon. Melinda had already disappeared into the grocery aisles when she shouted across the store, Are you still doing the early morning class? Yes. Naomi shouted, 
and felt funny shouting across the store, even though it was nearly empty. I am, she added. Are you, are you thinking about starting again? After several seconds, the reply came back. Oh no, I just wondered because you look tired, dear. I see, Naomi mumbled, and she slid her tray along the salad bar, digging through the spring greens to find the freshest looking ones. Oh no, I, I don't have time for yoga right now, Melinda shouted. I don't even have time to breathe. I've been here since three in the morning because I had to fire another baker, and Sarah's sick, and the truck is coming at one, and I probably won't get out of here until nine tonight, but I can't get out of here any sooner because I have to close by seven tomorrow because the Sabbath is starting. Uh-huh, Naomi acknowledged, passing to the capers and pickled peppers, both of which she dashed over her salad. Then she moved on to the dressings. We'll have pizza tomorrow, Melinda declared, returning to the hot bar. Segwaying seamlessly, she said, Like, I'm thankful that the business has been so successful, and really its whole purpose all along has been to give glory to God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but sometimes I feel like it's going to kill me, you know? And Melinda went on, but Naomi stopped listening. There, next to the dressings, there lay a bin in the salad bar, where her eyes fixed on the deep red, wet lumps that seemed to be watching her. They reminded her, What is it, dear? Melinda said, calling Naomi back from where she had gone. And now Naomi would be hard-pressed to say exactly why the compartment of boiled beets had elicited such a visceral reaction. Melinda tore her eyes from the beets with some effort. You're pale, Melinda said. Are you sick? I'll wipe down the bar when you're finished. Melinda eyed her suspiciously, readying the disinfectant rag. Oh, uh, no, I don't think I'm sick, Naomi stuttered slowly. I, uh, you haven't had beets in the salad bar before, that's different. Yeah, they sent way too many, Melinda told her. I don't know why they keep sending them. Do you want some beets? I'll give you a package. Uh, no, thank you. But seriously, are you well? Melinda pried. I'll pray for you. And you should take some of the Thai enchiladas. The cumin and turmeric will be good for you. Put some color back in your face because you look dreadful. This was a feat on Naomi's part, because her partial South Asian ancestry had imbued her skin with a lot of color. And if that color was gone, that was something. When Naomi got home to her apartment that night, after she was done at the college and after her evening yoga classes, and after another hour of studying at Starbucks, she threw her keys on the table and went straight into the kitchen. She wondered about pressing on with all this that was going on in her life, when it was just wearing her down and making her miserable. Behind the fruit plate full of perfectly round grapefruits and the most flawlessly yellow bananas she could find in the organic section of the store, there were three recycled almond butter jars. Naomi picked up the first of them and brought it close to her eyes. She forced a smile and tried to summon the warm, amicable feeling of seeing an old friend. Inside the jar, there were several spoonfuls of white rice and a spattering of condensation. I love you, Naomi told the rice. She held it for several more seconds, turning it around in her hand and examining it, before replacing it and picking up the next. Naomi put on a sour face. I hate you, she said and paused thoughtfully. You're a little bitch. In this, she made herself laugh a little. And your mother was too. She replaced the jar behind the fruit on the counter. The third and final jar, 
The control she ignored. Then she went to the bathroom, already throwing her shirt across the bedroom in the general direction of the hamper. From the corner of her eye, as she bent to start the water running for the shower, she could see the intimation of her brown skin and browner hair, briefly blotting out the light in the vanity mirror, like a moth passing in front of a lamp. She wondered in a low voice, Am I sick? Water cascaded onto the bottom of the tub with a heavy, amorphous thump, and then the white noise of a constant chortle. Naomi turned and took a towel from the rack. Healing vibes, she thought. The body wants to heal. She turned to the mirror, and she began to unbutton her pants, and she froze. In place of her eyes, two fist-sized boiled beets stared back, as a thin red liquid ran down from them on her cheeks. Naomi screamed but stopped herself quickly. She was fine. Everything was fine. Her own eyes looked back at her, autumnal as ever. After a moment, she mumbled, I just want to feel myself again. She touched her face and then straightened her hair. Squid-like trails of flesh flew through the blackness as she closed her eyes, indistinct, faceless. There flashed a ruddy, running eye, looking back at her, so like the disquieting beats. Her eyes shot open. Naomi hadn't felt like herself since that night, when she had been out late and chanced to see some of the things of the night that should not be seen. The implementers, which looked so much like mollusks crossbred with flies, and the girl, the pastoress who hunts them and hunts those who have had the misfortune of encountering them, like Naomi. She couldn't put her finger on what had changed. She just felt worn down, broken, body and mind. And she wondered, with this go-go-go life she was living, why she was still go-go-going when she felt like it was making her fall apart. And she was getting nowhere fast for keeping up the pace. She felt vaguely sick, especially at night, alone in bed, in sleepless hours. And she could no longer spring out of bed with her admittedly early 4 a.m. alarm. Instead, she found herself turning it off and sleeping until 7 most mornings. Naomi pulled the plunger on the faucet to run the shower head, and tested the water with her hand. She got in, pulling the cute fish-pattern curtain closed behind her, and turning in the warm water to let it warm her front and back. As she washed, proceeding through the usual litany of an automatic routine, she lost herself for many minutes in the battering of hot pellets of water, breathing the soft steam. She let the water barrage the back of her head and neck, massaging her unease away. She had researched, of course, googled deep and hard into fringe places, where she would be ashamed to be found. That was how she learned that others had seen her, the cassocked girl, and that she had become known in urban legend as the pastoress. The primary source of the urban legend was a redditor going by the username Nullifer, who claimed he had seen her, even been hunted by her, and survived. This made her feel less alone, and, in fact, she had considered reaching out to him if only to say, I believe you, I saw her too. Because to everyone else in the thread, 
It was clearly only a story, a contemporary myth made mostly for entertainment, like Slender Man or Momo, but less well-known. The worst part was the uncertainty. Knowing that this nocturnal alternative reality could burst back into her life at any time, and this made it difficult to sleep some nights. There was also the uncertainty of what had been done to her, if anything, because maybe it was all in her mind. She believed that the power of healing was all in her mind. The frightening obverse of the placebo effect was that if the mind deeply believed it was diseased, perhaps it could also destroy the body. And she found it hard to believe otherwise now. Nullifer, the Redditor who had also seen the pastoris, warned that the implementers had been sent by something called Ota Asinash, the name she had heard in her mind that night, to program self-destruction into human minds. That was a scary thought, and she feared that her own experience now was additional testimony to it, and even if not, she feared the power of her belief would make it a self-fulfilling prophecy anyway. She heard an unfamiliar click. Her eyes flew open, her peace dispelled. A moment ago, she had been in the safest place physically as well as mentally that she could imagine. And now that shower curtain blinding her and the noise of the water deafening her to the outside world left her feeling exposed and vulnerable. Naomi tried to remember the specific act of locking the apartment door that evening and could not. Her fingers trembled as they traveled toward the edge of the vinyl curtain. And she assured herself, or tried, that it was certainly nothing. These things were always certainly nothing. But she remembered the beats. She remembered the creature whose red eye had bloomed like a flower of blood and touched her on the head. She remembered the threat of the pastorist to return for her. Naomi sensed the figure outside the curtain. The girl who was not a girl, but who mimed her humanity. Who didn't fully understand the meaning of the priest's cassock she wore. Who didn't feel emotions like we feel emotions. But had been sent to eliminate whomever had been touched by the implementers, lest their disease spread through the universe, to prevent them from becoming what Naomi now feared that she was becoming. Naomi felt the mascara-lined eyes on the other side, swore that she could somehow hear the shallow breaths through the water's roar. Just as Naomi's fingertips touched the edge of the curtain, the curtain was torn aside by another hand, and Naomi fell against the shower wall and covered herself with her arms. She screamed with abandon as she beheld someone else. There was a young man, wearing the oddest assortment of thrift store clothes and brandishing a gun. The dawn, he started to say, but a red spray spurted from his temple and he fell aside, cracking his head on the toilet bowl with a sickening wet thud. He crumpled on the floor. The pastoress hurried into the room and grabbed the young man's leg, feeling up and down the ankle and calf, clearly with a precise motive in mind. Seeming to find something in his calf muscle below the knee, she stood back again and fired another silenced shot into that last place she had felt. When she did, an inhuman scream, more like the hissing of gas, seemed to come from the man, not from his mouth, but from his leg. Only then did the pastress look at Naomi, finding her hugging her knees in the bottom of the shower. She pushed aside a lock of her purple-dyed page-cut hair and said to Naomi, you have started to glow. Tian Wen, landlord and restaurant owner, was at Naomi's door. 
Naomi's toweled head was poking out. I heard a scream, he said. Do I call the police? That phrasing made it unclear whether he meant to call the police on whatever had assaulted her, or on her for making a racket in the building. I am so, so sorry, Naomi blurted out. I was watching this scary movie and I just got way, way too into it. I am so sorry. Okay, I see, Tian Wen said. Have a good night, he said, and turning away, revised it to you. Have a good quiet night. Naomi spun, closing the door behind her, and ran back to the bathroom where she found the pastoress loading the dead man into the shower stall. Will you kill me? Naomi choked out. I do not know, the pastoress replied. Was, was that man a killer like you? Why did you kill him then? Do you complain? The pastoress protested. No, but I... You are glowing, she said again. I and the others who fight Ota Asanash can see you now. What are you doing with him? Naomi wondered, nodding at the legs still sticking out of the shower stall, which the pastoress lifted and tucked inside. Worry no bit about this one she said. And you give him the but a couple hours he wash away with water. What? Naomi squeaked. The pastoress, hovering over the kill, raised dark, glowering eyes to her. He will wash away with water in about two of the hours of you, she repeated. Only clothes left, and we throw them away. What happens next? Naomi wondered, urgency and fatalism in her wavering voice. Will others come too? Mm, the pastoress toned, which seemed like a non-committal yes. What happens next? She echoed. You are impacted, and you change. You change to be like the mind of Ota Asnash, until you become the mind of Ota Asnash, a part of him. Standing, the pastoress ushered her out of her own bathroom with an extended arm. They meandered into the front room as Naomi glanced back at her. I don't want to, Naomi stuttered. Isn't there anything? Maybe, the pastoress said. They stopped by the bookcase and the pastoress was now not looking at her, and Naomi had the sense that she was avoiding her eyes quite deliberately, studying the books instead. The pastoress ran her finger along the spines on one shelf. I commit by vow to end spread of weed that is Ota Asanash at whatever the cost, and that mean destruction wherever it spread. However, Naomi, I begin to think there is other ways. Maybe. I had a hunt not far ago that not did end in killing. And from this I am thinking, thinking I know not what, but I do have the vows. Naomi hesitated. To God? Oh no, the pastoress replied swiftly. The vows of the killer, we maybe do good work of him, but it is the perfect dawn that send me on to here. My vow, which I mean is to kill whatever organism ought to asnash, the creations of him, may touch. To stop his sickness from touching the olive things, 
No, that isn't very godly, Naomi muttered. Oh, is it not? The pastors replied. Is it godly thing to let life perish from the planets? By taking more life? The life is already lost once touched. Or, I thought, maybe not all times. So this is why you haven't killed me. Why you killed the man in my bathroom instead. Oh, that is because I love you. What? Naomi shrieked. There is word in Bible of you. Love, the pastors explained. I do like for me that word. Love. And I that for you, understand? Like in the Bible of God. I don't think you understand that book as well as you think you do, Naomi muttered. Or, or God, for that matter. Verily, my working of your tongue is not perfect, the pastor said, as one not from here. But I do love the God. And as I did tell you, yes, I have the great fortune of to meet the God in palace of him, but only for one short time. I do not know that the God you met is the God in that book, Naomi said. It says so in the book, the pastor said quickly. But this is not our purpose now. I want you to come with me. Where? Naomi stuttered. The pastors leveled her eyes at Naomi. It is your concern not to die, yes? A fucking course, Naomi replied. Verily, the pastors said. Then we must learn something of the human being in order that we judge if there is a for certain cure. I want for you to meet someone. Who? One knowledgeable. One ancient of this world. Are you the knowledgeable and ancient one? Naomi asked the young man tucked into the back seat of the car. I'm... I'm Hunter, he stuttered. This one is impacted, the pastors explained, falling into the driver's seat. One like you, Naomi. Uh, it's Naomi, she corrected. Ah, Naomi, the pastors echoed. I knew it sounded clumsier than that. Good, good to meet you, Hunter said, sounding more like a question. It... Is she going to kill you too? I don't think she's going to kill us, Naomi assured him. The pastress glanced sidelong as if to say without saying that she might, and she started the car. Her previous reclaimed or stolen car, Herpy the Tetanus Bug as Naomi had thought of it, had been replaced with a different requisition, a Pontiac sedan called a Sunfire with a long, slightly swollen-looking front end and headlamps that looked like an angry moth monster. It was not something Naomi ever saw on the road, as if it didn't generally survive the 90s, so it felt surprising this thing was running and operable and had been discovered in that condition. Naomi sat in the front. Hunter called forward after a minute on the road. So, uh, can you tell me what's going on? Like... If you want my money, first of all, I don't really have any, but, uh, you can have it. You have a gun and all, and all I've got is my, uh, charming personality, but, uh, yeah, I could just, like, 
give you what I've got any time and you could just uh, stop and, you know, let me out? He has been doing the talking much like this, the pastors told Naomi, but I do not understand the much of it. Is it the what you call a joke? Or is this human being in seriousness? How much have you told him? Naomi wondered. She hasn't told me a thing since she pointed a gun at me and put me in her car, Hunter called forward. I told you that the dawn of this world is coming, the pastors corrected, glancing at him in the central mirror. Yeah, that, uh, that doesn't mean much to me, he said. Is this like a cult thing then? Naomi turned around in her seat as much as she could with her seatbelt on, and with as little trust as she had for this alien girl to drive in the lines. Paul, was it? Hunter. Okay, I don't know where I got Paul, but the thing is... Naomi glanced at the pastoress and back at Hunter. Yeah, I don't know if I can explain this. Uh, have you... Uh, seen anything weird lately? Like in the last year, maybe? There was this gentleman of color I saw by the office max with the wildest pink mohawk. It was like four feet tall. No. Like, have you seen... Uh, shit. Like, an alien? Or a monster? Something way messed up. Oh! Oh shit! That! Hunter grabbed his chin and stared off into space. So, are you like... You two, the men in black, then? No, she said simply. We're going to talk to, well, what she called an ancient and knowledgeable one, because this is, uh, I hope not too much of a shock to you, but when we saw that creature, it, uh, did something to us. The impacting, the pastor said. The impacting, Hunter echoed. What is that? He demanded, voice rising. Naomi hesitated, staring at the side of the pastor's head and thinking about the unease and listlessness she felt and the dull ache in her chest, sometimes accompanied by a disconcerting flutter, all of which she blamed now on the incurable self-loathing. She said, breaking eye contact, Maybe we'll find out exactly what. After a few thoughtful seconds, Naomi turned back to Hunter and eyed him over. Are you drunk? I had a beer, he said. Just one? Naomi wondered. Hunter shrugged and looked sorry. Uh, it was a big one? Then he thought and asked. What was it? The creature, I mean. As they continued on toward an unknown end, Naomi filled Hunter in on what little she knew while the pastoress seemed to avoid contributing any information, but held her eyes steadfastly, stubbornly, on the illuminated highway. Where are we? Hunter called forward. It had been close to two hours with reflector poles and construction cones flying by. Now they were coming into a secluded town in the Redwoods. Killoran. Naomi said. The pastoress, still avoiding participating in the questions and answers, only concerned herself with pulling onto the main street of Kiloran. Naomi asked her suddenly, Why did you shoot the man in the particular place in the leg? What man? Hunter called forward, while the pastoress delayed answering. Another hunter, Naomi said to him, 
Like her. He came for me. Oh, shit. There are more like her? Are they after us? I had to find the body of him to kill him, the pastors droned, as if that explained it fully. Suddenly, Hunter craned his neck to look up through the backseat window. Did, did I just see something? He wondered. The pastorist took note and leaned over the wheel to gaze up into the sky. What is it? Naomi demanded of her. But she was not quick to answer. Maybe an implementa, she said at last. But I do not see a thing. I thought I saw a shadow pass in front of the streetlight over us, Hunter explained. This concerns me, the pastorist said, still leaning over the wheel. Naomi started to glance between her and the road as the car wandered back and forth in the lane. Finally, Naomi reached and grabbed the wheel. What? the pastor said. There is not any car. There is no one. Lights came on behind them, and the siren blared a short single tone. Oh, shit! Hunter said. The pastor narrowed her eyes into the rear view while Naomi watched what she would do. You have to pull over, Naomi told her. I have no want to pull over, she droned. Oh God, what will they do? It's not like you have a driver's license, do you? Oh my God, and this car is stolen, I bet. Oh shit, Hunter said again. You've got to pull over, Naomi said. I keep going, they will not leave, the pastress wondered. No, no they won't, Naomi laughed nervously. And you're not going to outrun them in this, this whatever this is. This junker, shit biscuits, we gotta, we gotta switch places. I, shit, I don't have my wallet either. Hunter? Uh, he stalled. Um, yeah, I guess I have my wallet, but, uh, I'm a little drunk. It's only one beer, Naomi said. Okay, when we pull over, she said urgently to the pastors, you and Hunter have to switch places as fast as you can. You gotta crawl over the console. I do not understand the bigness of this deal, the pastor said, tiredly, but with one eyebrow raised. And hide your gun under the seat, Naomi hissed through gritted teeth. I, uh, don't have a title or registration for this car any more than she does, Hunter said way too calmly. Grudgingly, the pastor's pulled over. She stared at Naomi. Have we to do the switch of place or no? Naomi put her face in her hands. Oh, we're fucked up the river. Any way we do it, she moaned. What is the fear of you? The pastoress wondered. I see only one man. I can kill him. No question. What? No! Naomi shrieked. No killing! There was a knock on the driver's window, and a flash of light. Naomi pointed at the window control, and the pastoress rolled it down and only glared ahead through the windshield. Ladies, do you know why I've pulled you over? He said. No, sir, Naomi said, shaking, when the pastorist did not answer. The young officer scrutinized the pastorist. Have you had anything to drink tonight? When no one answered, he hummed and said, Hmm, license and registration. There was a light thump, and then Naomi could have sworn she heard the officer mumble. Pretty kitty? She looked at him, 
The pastress was also looking at him now, and he stared into space over the car with a dumb look on his face. You again, pretty birdie? he said, drooling a little. Thank you for coming back to me. He whipped out his gun unprovoked, making Naomi flinch and the pastress draw her Walther in a flash from the console. Yes, I do see the way now. You're right all along, the officer said into space, eyes shimmering, and, as the edge of a brown tubule wrapped around the door trim of the car and reached slightly in to the open window, the officer flipped his sidearm into his mouth and pulled the trigger. With a spray of blood, he fell to the asphalt. The pastors fired through the roof and threw the car into gear as something tumbled off behind them into the road. Was that? Was that? Naomi stuttered. Hunter was only chanting, Oh my fucking Jesus! Oh my fucking Jesus! Out of his mind. Verily, an implementer found us, the pastor said. That did not kill it. It will follow. She glanced between the road ahead and her rear view. Naomi turned in her seat to watch the inky night behind them, but saw little. The car sped through Killoran and into the switchbacks in the forest outside of town. About a quarter mile out, the ambulance passed them the other way, and around a half mile out, the pastors pulled into a roadside bar, the name of which, Me and Willie's, flashed in the black and painted the near boughs and trunks of the redwoods, golden orange. This is the place? Naomi wondered. Fucking Jesus, Hunter petered out. And then he cried. He just fucking killed himself. Come, the pastors commanded, ignoring him and popping her door. When Hunter didn't get out, she threw open his door and pulled him by the collar. This is what they do, she sneered at him. The implementers. Oh my God, Hunter sobbed. As Naomi came around the car to meet them, she told the pastoress, Let him go, and grabbed his shoulder. He raised his watery red eyes. They make you kill yourself, he said. Is is that what they do? Something like that, Naomi said in a low voice. But it doesn't have to be that way. The pastoress said nothing but tucked her walther into her slacks and walked toward the neon entrance of Me and Willie's. As a trucker stumbled out of the matte black door, the thrum of indistinct music spilled into the quiet night air before being silenced with the clack of the latch. The pastors held the door while Naomi and Hunter went in. Their eyes adjusted to the middling light. The first things they saw were the neon signs and the track lighting on the bar, and the live music on the little stage repeating over and over again the refrain, living on Tulsa time, living on Tulsa time, to a stomping four-on-the-floor beat. As the room revealed itself, Naomi could begin to sense the truckers and drunks and the shadows at the tables. Every now and then, a bottle or a glass clanked, or you could catch a thread of murmuring voices through the music. The pastoress wound her way toward the little stage in the front corner, across from the bar. Naomi stood back with crossed arms and glanced at the haggard woman with the gratuitous endowments hanging out of her discount store v-neck, tending the bar. Hunter stood awkwardly by the jukebox and pretended to read the inventory of songs. The pastoress reached the foot of the little stage. 
The duo consisted of a woman in a wheelchair and a 30-something man with black, greasy hair, stubble, and a chubby face. He was playing guitar and singing lead. The woman was the more notable quantity. She was singing backup, but using only the wordless slurred syllables of a deaf person. However, she could clearly hear well enough to sing in key, and beautifully. There was something strange about her face, and Naomi supposed that her handicap extended beyond her paraplegia. Both musicians noticed the pastoress right away, and Naomi could read the recognition that flashed across their faces. They went on to play one more number, the Emmylou Harris song, If I Could Only Win Your Love, before the man set down his acoustic guitar on its stand and nodded at the pastoress. The man wheeled the woman in her chair off the stage and into the back, leading the three visitors into the little wood-paneled office of the bar's manager. He wheeled the woman to the corner and turned her around to face into the room, before sitting on the edge of the desk and eyeing over the visitors. What's up? was all he said. I've come once more for wisdom, the pastoress told him. There are ways of the planet that I do not yet understand, which have importance to the work of me. I told you before, whatever you are, the man said, that we're not going to help you kill people. No matter it's a good reason or no, that's not what we do. Perhaps, the pastoress hissed, there need not be a killing this time. That is why I need the things to know. The man just shrugged and held his hand out toward the woman, and then he crossed his arms. As the pastoress stepped toward the woman in the wheelchair, he glared at her and wouldn't take his eyes off of her. This specimen, the pastoress intoned, is the last of a very ancient kind. Her knowing of the world of you is very intimate. She petted the woman's face like one caresses a stranger's dog. The woman recoiled slightly and hissed at her. Then Naomi saw what she thought at first was just the afterimage of the neon lights, of the bar fade into being in front of the pastoress's face. But the light did not move with Naomi's eyes, or fade with the blinking. A dim light had manifested in front of her chin, a few inches off, now switched rapidly between several colors. In reply, the same phenomenon showed in front of the woman's face and flashed through a series of colors. The man had a strange look on his face, not shock. It seemed he had perhaps seen this before, and not merely the glowering protectiveness he had been displaying, but something else that looked like disgust. What is she saying? Naomi said meekly. I have asked her whether one is able to heal the human soul from the impacting, whether there is any chance at all, if she knows anything of the organism of the soul. It seems the ancient wardens of this world. The pastoress stopped suddenly to watch as the colored light over the woman began to flicker spastically. When it ceased, the pastoress turned to Naomi. She wants to see you. What? Naomi mewed. Cautiously, Naomi stepped over to the wheelchair. The woman beckoned with her arm for her to come even nearer. Naomi got down on a knee and the woman held her face. She smiled at Naomi, 
a serene, closed-lipped smile. Her oily black curls fell over her face as she set her forehead against hers and hummed. Naomi could feel the woman herself seem to vibrate. It was entrancing, and Naomi had no desire to break free. Rather, she could have just disappeared into nothing at that moment. She seemed to purr, almost like a cat, but more evenly, like a high-performance engine. Naomi heard the woman click her mouth, startling her from her reverie, and she pulled back. Naomi found herself clutching the blanket that covered the woman's lap, and having balled some of it in her fist, a part of the woman's hip was revealed below her blouse, and Naomi saw scales, iridescent turquoise scales. The woman continued to smile at her, then, losing that smile, she turned her gaze on the pastorus and, again, that light appeared and flashed through various colors. The pastors translated for Naomi. She says that you are dying. The words hit Naomi like a crumbling wall of bricks, especially after such a moment of peace and good spirit. Her hands went to her face and she started to cry. What do you mean she's dying? Hunter said, sounding outraged on her behalf. The man's eyes flicked between Naomi, the pastoress, and the woman, but he held his dour poker face. The human soul is an organism of great power, the pastoress said, which is weakened by the prison of it in flesh. That power is for the manifesting of reality. Presently, I suppose she mean to say that Naomi is manifesting her want to die. Hunter stared at her. Why would you want to die? He wondered awkwardly. I don't, Naomi said, pulling her hands from cradling her face. Mascara lines had begun to track her cheeks. But I... I am fucking miserable. I've been in a rough place too lately, Hunter said. You, you don't have to die, you know. And you should feel good about yourself. It is easy to say the words to another person, the pastoress hissed. But can you say it to yourself, boy, and mean it? Because you, too, are impacted. I... Hunter started, but stopped himself. You can't just change how you feel, the pastoress said. That is what I learn about humans. Why your species make so much sin. Again and again, your race says words and doesn't mean them because the words are against the feeling and your race finds it easy and the dissonance unremarkable. It is a wonder. The light flashed in front of the woman in the wheelchair. She says that it is very sensible that the wardens of this world have imprisoned you here, the pastoress translated. The wardens? Hunter echoed. The pastoress stared at him silently, as if he were stupid, and held her tongue. I believe that the soul has the power to manifest reality, Naomi said. I really do, but if my mind is killing me, can't it also heal me? That is the theory, the pastoress said. But once the cycle of destruction is introduced into the mind, 
It grows like a virus, does it not? Can one turn a rushing river around to flow up the stream? I... I have been taught, and it is the standard teaching of us, that the impacted by Ota Asanash must simply die, be... be cut off like the rotting limb to save what remains of the body, but... But, Hunter encouraged, not long ago, I gave my quarry the chance to turn, and it may be that he did. Nullifer, Naomi said. I do not know the that, the pastorist said. And it may be he did not be healed all the way, but only longed the days of his fight. I know not. Still, that one does not glow. It is standard practice to give the quarry a chance, and it is taught that they will always choose death if indeed impacted, and this justifies the killing. It is not against the will, but consented to. But this one, who was indeed impacted, did not consent to die when presented the choosing. It was the difficult for him to do this, but he chose to live. This gives me hope, Naomi said. But she didn't feel it. Hunter grabbed her shoulder and shook her and said, Hold on to that. She didn't tell him that she felt nothing beneath the words, but simply smiled without meeting his eyes. Inwardly, she thought, If my survival depends on my ability to be positive and not hate myself, I am fucked all the way up the river. Now wait, Hunter said, breaking a long, thoughtful silence. Tell me what you meant by wardens in prison? Am I the only one concerned by this? Excuse me, Naomi said suddenly, and she shouldered past Hunter to slip out of the office's old hollow-core trailer-home-quality door. Papers pinned to the inside of it flapped with the air of her passing. The pastress watched her go in silent judgment, and then set her eyes coolly back upon the woman in the wheelchair. A brief shotgun blast of colors flashed in front of the woman's chin and then faded. Verily, the pastoress said to her, and appeared to think. Hunter felt something when Naomi had brushed past him for the door. He was desperate enough when it came to women, really, that feeling anything to even the smallest degree in the most insignificant of situations, would be something remarkable to him. But as he felt the transient warmth of her body, it seemed electrified. Hunter was recognizing the old familiar hopeless hope rising in him, that sad unrequited affection of the friend zone penitentiary, where he was a multiple offender, yet had managed several prison breaks to flee and fall again. He recognized that the evening had started with an evanescent yet exhilarating eye contact exchanged with the pastoress, and in the car, slightly tipsy, he had spent several minutes of the drive fantasizing about a three-way with his two female captors. But now it was official. He was strongly attracted to Naomi, and the other girl was an alien death machine without the capacity for the full gamut of human emotions, so... Better bet on the other one anyway. 
as slim as his odds there likely were. Now the revelation of the impacting pained him more for her sake than his own, even though they were up the same creek. He wanted to save her, but he didn't know how. Hunter teetered on the edge of running out that wood panel door after her. One could even see his Chuck Taylors fidgeting on the short pile of cano carpet with the faintest suggestion of the course they wanted to take. He also recognized that he was still a little buzzed. It was making him more courageous than normal, which was still not very courageous when it came to girls. As an involuntary sigh escaped him, everyone in the room looked at him. Sorry, it's late, he said, looking sheepish. He opened his mouth and made half of a sound, but he stopped himself, recognizing there was no point in trying to hide the fact. He was going after Naomi with some excuse. And Hunter slipped, awkwardly, out the door, whacking his elbow on the jam on his way out. Naomi hugged herself in the night, out behind the bar where the lot had been cleared about a half acre to the edge of the redwoods. Near the building, she could smell the dumpsters and the oil vats, so she wandered out into the middle of the lot. I'm fucking dying, she thought aloud, probably for the goddamn best. For all the things she blamed on her miserable exes and the dozens of bad dates, she knew it takes one to date one when it comes to asshats. The caliber of man she attracted was a reflection of her, was it not? And those whom she chose to accept a further reflection of her poor judgment. And then the destructive downward spiral of a narcissistic, jealous relationship. That had to be, in large part, her own fault too. She knew she got crazy, and she hated playing the cliché of the crazy girlfriend. Hormones get bent. So now she'd been burying herself in art and school and yoga, refusing to admit to herself how hot her Sculpture two professor was and how he was definitely flirting with her. And she refused to even speak to the guy in the brewery last weekend. She just gave him that get-fucked look and not by me it had tagged on. The good old resting bitch face. A bitch at rest stays at rest, she thought. Am I a bitch? I've become mean, unforgiving. I judge every guy who so much as looks at me because I think I know him already, but really, all I know is what a fucking mess I am when it comes down to it. The creature that had touched her flashed in her mind, drooling beat eyes amid a storm of tawny tentacles. She had known it wasn't over when that night was over. She'd feared it every night since. Felt it growing in her ribcage like a tumor. Fuck, maybe it was a tumor. She was dying after all. She was terrified, alone in the dark outdoors. That one could swoop down from the sky or burst from the trees at any time. But she also dared it to happen. To just get it over with. Can't they just kill me right away? Why do they have to wait for me to kill myself? Or at least to fall apart with time? Who's there? Naomi shouted. There was a footstep, and then another. Ahead of her, coming from the redwoods, 
She could faintly see something like a red hourglass shimmer with the light from the bar. There was another footstep, and another, slow and deliberate. One bearing tidings of salvation, said a voice. In the abyssal peace of our lord, Oda Asanash. He stepped from shadow, and Naomi could make out something tall and narrow with four skeletal arms gesturing in the air, like a many-armed Krishna. The hourglass decorated something like an apron that trailed down the breast. She couldn't see the face, or many details. The head was small and not normal-shaped. A larger body fell down from above and came to rest behind the slender figure. A protean mass of limbs, which Naomi recognized as an implementer, probably the same one that had pursued them earlier. It crouched near the figure, like a pet or trained animal, and seemed to stew with bubbling intensity. Only its red eye caught the light. As Hunter wrapped his knuckles on the bathroom door, the blood burned and prickled in his veins, where he'd felt like throwing in the towel on life for months now. Suddenly, he felt alive with purpose, and that purpose was to toss aside narcissistic navel-gazing of self-loathing and worry about someone else's well-being for once. He found himself afraid for what he would say to her and whether there was anything at all he could say to her that would matter, but exhilarated and determined all the same. So many of his aims had been so squarely selfish. Really, more than anything, only ever concerned with finally getting himself laid. Whether the specific goal be getting back into college or starting his own metal band, he had been sitting on a couple names, Night Scream and Deathsaurus. He also liked Skyquake. And it was this cycle of selfish aims getting broken, repeatedly, against the wall of unforgiving reality, that had been driving him into such a dark and miserable place. Hey, Naomi? He called at the door. The door was locked, but there was no swift reply. Quick, what do I say? He wondered. What if she's actually on the pot? Oh, God, this is awkward. What have I done? Uh, hey, sorry, but if, if you need company dealing with, uh, the fact that these alien things have hacked into our brains and are convincing us to kill ourselves, I'll be out here. Uh, yeah, you're not alone. Hunter stood back from the door and shoved his hands into his pockets. He turned away to look at the bulletin board full of flyers of local events, but didn't really see any of it. Music picked back up on the main floor, and Hunter wondered to where the pastress will have gone if the band was back on stage. When the bathroom door flew open, Hunter's heart did a somersault, and he whipped around to find a 300-pound biker in a studded leather vest with salt-and-pepper stubble on all three of his chins who smelled like cigarettes. The biker stared at the scrawny kid a moment with lowered, appraising eyelids. Slowly, he opened his mouth, showing rotting teeth, thought, and then closed it again before limping toward the bar. The creature offered Naomi a gift with his upper left hand, which he now extended on a long, shaking stalk of an arm, 
more like a plant stem than like a mammalian limb. The offering was a stone knife, soft pastel green, jade perhaps, which glistened under the motion sensor light of the bar's back door a dozen yards behind her, and rested in the rectangular wrinkled palm of a three-fingered hand. Bands of silver or pewter ornamented the black hilt. What Oda Asenash offers is freedom, not only from the prison of this world, but from all suffering, the voice intoned. It can be nearly painless, yet the reward is infinite. It is a perfect rest from this life that you never asked to possess. I'm not ready, Naomi said. I... I can't. I couldn't possibly. Things can still change, can't they? Isn't that what life is? Change? You cannot refuse the truth of how you feel. Your will is already set, destroying this body which it rejects. Ask yourself now whether you can foresee that changing. Why not hasten what end already ensues? That peaceful end which you know in your heart you look forward to. He passed the jade knife into Naomi's hand, and she studied it. What am I supposed to do with it? She said after a while. It can be nearly painless, the being assured her again. I just can't, she repeated. Still, she studied the blade, and the possibility it signified. Whether that end come now or tomorrow, or unknown years ahead. The back door of the bar clicked open, and a momentary fragment of song bled into the night air. Emmy Lou again. And you wouldn't think a man so weak could be so strong. Take the blues right out of you. Put him in a sun. The couplet was interrupted by the clack of the heavy door latch, and Hunter jogged out into the back lot to meet Naomi sneakers crunching in the dirt. She heard him stop suddenly and turned to see him staring into the night where the being stood, half visible. He looked at the creature, and then at the knife in Naomi's hand. A notable yet unreadable expression flashed over Hunter's face, as if he resolved himself to something, and he marched forward and took the knife from her hand. Oh, is it suicide time? He asked the night priest, strangely cheery. I'll go first. Hunter? Nami whispered, lost. The creature remained listless, either confused or resigned to his fate as Hunter grabbed him by the tiny neck and opened him with the knife, hissing, Nah, you go first. The alien did not fight, but fell onto his knees, the knees of his mantis-like legs, and let Hunter draw the knife across him, as a prodigious oily fluid spilled and the vesicles of an unknown anatomy slipped through the cut and dangled toward the earth. Thank you, he said serenely. Fear not. The day will come that you join us in the perfect rest, child. Oh my God, Naomi cried, covering her mouth. As the night priest fell, the rest of the way limp to the ground, 
The implementer that crouched behind him lunged and took Hunter into a tentacle's meaty embrace. A shot rang out, and then another. The implementer flared its arms and danced, jerking Hunter around as he stabbed the knife repeatedly into the tentacle arm. The pastoris came into view from Naomi's right and fired again, striking the red, seeping eye, like throwing a marble into a raspberry jello cup. Tired of getting stabbed, the implementer seized Hunter's right arm, which held the knife, in its beak and wrenched and clipped it off at the elbow as Hunter screamed in agony. Then the beast cast him onto the ground. Spit flew after him from the beak, striking his face and renewing his cries. The pastoris continued to fire on the implementer, which, displeased with this assault on it, now writhed and fled up into the sky. Naomi found Hunter with fresh burns covering much of his face. She panicked, and it took the pastoris to come over and tie off the arm with part of Hunter's shirt. It's not her M.O. to use a knife, said Fowler. Hudson looked at him, around them. Agents were taping off the perimeter of the bar's property with yellow do-not-cross tape. Hudson only put his hands on his hips and nodded. Do you ever get tired of cleaning up after her? He went on laughing. Lord, this is a mess. I mean, what is this even? There are body parts here not even known to your anatomy books, Horatio. There's some blood. Human blood here, Fowler. Agent Rosen announced. Fowler, arms on hips, stood over the dried stain in the dirt and scowled. Get Engel on hospital admissions, he grunted. Fowler looked up suddenly and stared into the trees. Behind him, someone cleared his throat. Turning, he found an NSA man. The fuck are you doing here? Fowler groaned. Agent Pinker, he said. Fowler, Fowler answered and tagged on swiftly. Agent in charge here. I'm going to need to see your badge, Agent Fowler, Pinker told him. You're going to need to see my badge. Fowler answered. Fowler dug it out and flipped it open, barely showing it long enough to see it, displaying just how much regard he had for the intruding agent. No, I mean your other badge, Pinker said and laughed. Only one I've got, Fowler said gruffly, refusing to smile at the gag. Pinker fell silent and stared into Fowler's face. Finally, Fowler dug in his pockets again, and he produced another document. Thank you, Agent Fowler, Pinker said. As you can see, we are on the same team after all. Fowler held up a piece of parchment, and upon it was the image of a hand in ink, covered in scales with long, sharpened fingernails. He quickly replaced it at his breast. Naomi normally tossed her keys onto the table when she entered the side door of her apartment by the kitchen. At 7 a.m., as she returned from the ER, she slammed the door and chucked them across the apartment into the living room and held her head against the wall. She sobbed for several minutes, but was too tired to outright cry. She made ugly snorting noises as she choked on her dry sobs and pressed her palm into her temple. When Naomi recovered her poise, 
She stared blankly at the kitchen counter and the bowl of fruit and wiped each eye once hastily with the side of her hand. She remembered the rice experiment, the three jars of cooked white rice she had on the counter behind the fruit bowl. Naomi took up the first jar, labeled love, and turned it around in her hand. She wanted to believe that positive intentions could affect the world around her. She wanted to believe that belief itself could heal her. Now she found the love jar, ripe with fuzzy gray mold, speckled red and orange. The clear results of her best attempts at positive intentions. Since we're talking about politics, did you happen to watch the debate? Yes, and the essential question of boxers versus briefs didn't even come up. The closest thing was when CNN depanced Andrew Yang at the podium. At least now we know he's a briefs man. If only they'd kept their answers brief. There's only one way this platform is going to move forward, Matt. And that is from the ground up. One leg at a time. We've got to get this nation's britches in order. And that starts with us, Matt. The people. Change is not going to come from the top down. We can't have Uncle Sam's hands in our pants. It's down to us. We've got to use our own hands to make Americans cross comfortable one crotch at a time. How how did you know about my Uncle Sam? When I look at the political stage, Matt, and I try to picture what the candidates have got going on under their pleated pants, I come to realize that they're all really the same underneath, whether boxers or briefs. Because it doesn't matter much what kind of underwear you wear when that underwear is full of shit. Did you see Bernie's G-string? Today's story was pestrous. Whosoever believeth by Brick Norwood tall one that I hate! Music by him, too. Other nonsense by the backward hat guy who lent me his soul. Monster Porn Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media! Future productions will all be vetted by me so these fuckers don't screw anything else up!
Good day, Monsterbaiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, first, voters for the pulling up of briefs thanks you for your support. And second, please review Monster Porn on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute and helps us out a great deal. Tell us in your review whether you're boxers or briefs or communist. Don't forget about the Summer of Sin Challenge. Take a selfie with Monster Porn merch in church. That rhymed. Or somewhere else totally inappropriate for a chance to win two more t-shirts for your collection. Tag us on social media or email info at monsterpornpodcast.com. You know, if you want to be an influencer. If you enjoyed this installment of Pastorus, check out episodes 12 and 23 for the story up to now. Pastorus returned because of your support. So let us know if you want to see her again. Lastly, some exciting news. This episode is over. Okay, bye. Until the shark angels come, yada yada, stay weird. Godspeed, strange cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>